Knowing what role a VC should play is tough. How do you coach without helicoptering, advise without pressing too hard? Harry Nellis, a partner at Excel, has spent a lot of time thinking about the right founder-investor relationship. I think investors and board members can be helpful. At the end of the day, it's the, it's the founder who needs to make it happen. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, we have uh, Harry Nellis, a uh, partner at Excel. He's been there for 17 years, has seen a lot of really great companies, and we're going to talk about them today. But first of all, welcome, Harry. Thank you. Thank you for having me, uh, Carlos. I want to start off with uh, your background. Uh, we always like to start off with a little bit about the person uh, before they became successful or where they are today. Um, I know that we were chatting a little bit about some of the things that you did and companies you started um, prior to, to being at Excel, but maybe just walk us through, uh, you know, what you studied undergrad and what was the first job you, you took? All right, cool. So uh, first of all, my accent is Dutch. So if you were wondering, born and raised in the Netherlands, ended up studying electrical engineering. In those days, computer science didn't exist yet. Uh, ended up doing a PhD in essentially applied math and signal processing and ended up at Stanford uh, in that context. So when I was done, got my first job at HP, at HP Labs uh, on Pacemill Road in Palo Alto and was a scientist. So I sat in a cubicle working on graphics processors, the, uh, the graphics processors that would go into workstations and that are pretty similar or have many things in common with the kind of processors that um, NVIDIA makes today. So I was a, uh, a scientist for three years, was very interested in becoming more involved in engineering and engineering management. So transferred out to a workstation division of HP in Fort Collins, Colorado for a year, and then had an idea about a new product, a new business, and um, ended up leaving Hewlett Packard, got some seed money from friends, and became an entrepreneur, started a software company. Uh, raised money from Greylock, who in those days, because we're talking 93, 93 now, in those days were just setting up their 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 office on the on the West Coast. But uh, Greylock originally was a, a Boston-based firm, so raised money from Greylock and uh, and became a founder CEO of of a startup company. I was the CEO for a couple of years. Um, then became the VP of engineering after uh, us having hired a, a quote-unquote experienced uh, manager and CEO. We, we, can, we can dive into that later on, uh, Carlos. So did that. That company merged with another private company. I left, didn't quite know what to do, went to business school, was at Harvard for a couple of years, and then came back to London. And uh, in 99, was first at Goldman Sachs, where I joined the PIA, their principal investment area essentially investing in kind of later stage private technology companies and then joined Excel in 04, um, who had just set up an office a couple of years earlier um, in, uh, in London. So that's my very short history pre-Excel. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. So I want to go and jump back into, especially during the time when you were a founder and, and working on uh, some of your company. Walk us through, I know you were sharing with me an anecdote about sort of your evolution as leadership in the company. Talk us a little bit more about kind of 
how the company grew, like what was the sort of the maximum employees that you had at what point, and then kind of how you evolved as a CEO during that time? Yeah. So, so when I joined, it was not joined when I started. I had uh, recruited two co-founders, so it was the three of us who started mm-hmm. the business. So in the very beginning, it was just three people working out of our bedrooms. Uh, I think it got up to 40, 50 employees in total before it merged with another private company. Um, really, what I learned is how incredibly hard it is to start a business from scratch. And, and how incredibly hard it is to create a new product, to get customers on board, and get the market timing right. I mean, essentially, we were, we were a few years early with our product. So I have ultimate respect for people who build businesses from scratch. That's one. And then two, I think I have a lot of empathy for, for entrepreneurs who, who have to go through a quote-unquote founder transition, whether it is... Um, Parting with co-founders, whether it is um, giving over the reins to the company to a new person who will come in, put his stamp on the company, bring in his people, um, and um, and how hard that is to to kind of hand over your baby to a, a new person. So I have, I think, from those days, it's a long time ago right now, but it, they were pretty formative. Uh, learning. So I have a lot of empathy for, for people who go through that. You know, there's a moment in some cases where, where you, you see there is a benefit to the founder or the founders of bringing somebody external to supplement them. In our, in our portfolio, we have one or two companies where it was entirely um, so, so relieving to hear from the founders. And actually, I interviewed one of them on the podcast, uh, the founder of Sabre, who shares his anecdote about bringing in somebody external to help guide the company and how much of a relief it was for him. Uh, and so I'm just trying to understand um, kind of what, what was that transition like? And also wh- what was the, the role that you ultimately took once that was over? Yeah. So with regards to Excel, the, the beginning of your question is, I think it's important to note that, that in many cases, the really successful companies are actually founder led. So, um, so our strong bias at Excel is to, is to try and keep the founder in the COC for as long as possible because th- th- those companies tend to, tend to be the most successful. Now, in, in founders' minds, and I, and I know that firsthand, there's two kind of thoughts. There's the rational thought and there's the emotional thought. Very often, founders come to a point where rationally they know it kind of makes sense to ask for help and bring somebody else in. But emotionally, that is kind of a different matter. And of course, in your brain, the emotional and the rational kind of get mixed up. So, 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 very, so very often, people know, yeah, it's probably the right thing. But emotionally, they also know, I'm not so sure if I want to hand over my baby. Can somebody really do it better than I can? And all that is kind of mixed up in one thing. And, and I think the, 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 the task of a coach, which I, I really see myself, is, is to help and unpack that with the founder. And then, and then we'll see where, where we end up. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot force these kind of transitions. The only thing that you can do is help people 
on that journey. For me, in in the days, it was I mean, I was very young. I was 27, turning 28. Um, I had only started to work when I was 25. I, I, I pretty much was new to America. So it, it was, it, it made sense that I got relatively early on after a couple of years, uh, an experienced manager. In. Now, there are, and of course, every experienced manager is not the same, but, but, but there is a reason why experienced managers are at larger companies for a long period of time, namely that they, they tend to like status quo. They tend to um, have built really large organizations that, that of course, cannot pivot um, very nimbly. So, so there, there are real, real definite issues. Um, Challenges with hiring "quote unquote" experienced managers as well. In my case, the first "quote unquote" experienced manager that we got on board did did not stay longer than a couple of years or so. Mm. Well, I want to jump deeper into some of those topics as as we discover a little bit more about your journey within Excel. Yeah. And so, I want to jump straight to kind of when you joined. Um, and you know, it's seventeen years is an amazing career, and you've seen probably just about every kind of scenario that um, an investor can see. There's one thing that I've learned is that I find out a new way to lose money every year. So that's good. That means you're not not playing it too safe. That's good. No, no. Um, Well, I want to, I want to kind of go through some of the companies that you've, you've invested in. I don't, I don't know if you want to name check any in particular, but maybe just kind of give us a sense of, of the, your journey in terms of investments that you've made during your time at Excel, like which which ones you you like to highlight and and maybe why? Yeah. Okay. Great. So first of all, so, so when I started in, in in the beginning of '04, um, the European venture capital market was dramatically different from the way it is today. Right. So uh, in those days, there was Excel who had open an office a couple of years earlier that was benchmark it was still called which is now what Bolton is and it was Atlas essentially in London and they were kind of the end European venture capital firms and that was pretty much it and typically they ended up investing in in the UK and Israel and and when I joined Excel there were no investments that had been made in France or Germany or anywhere else um, the kind of companies that I've invested in that, that, that people might might know is uh, I was an early investor in Kayak. That, that is, of course, a U.S. company, but the background there was Kayak had already uh, General Catalyst on board in, um, in the U.S. and they wanted to expand into Europe very early and they wanted to get a European venture capital firm on board. And what's better than to have a U.S. firm with a, with a European office? So I joined the Kayak board back in 06, I believe, 05 or, or 06, 05, I believe, actually, and, and, and traveled that whole journey with, uh, with Kayak until they went public on NASDAQ and then were acquired by Priceline, which is what now booking is for $2.2 billion, I think in 12 or 13. So that, that's a, that was a really interesting journey. And it's also interesting to kind of compare and contrast it with Czech 24 in Germany. So Czech 24 is um, a household name in Germany. It's, it's the kayak for personal financial products, uh, from car insurance to, to home loans 
to home improvement loans, to uh, gas and electricity contracts, etc. It's a it's a very big business in, in Germany. And I invested in the business around the same time, but we're still investors in Jack 24. So so in, in, in Kayak, we ended up selling the business in, in uh, 2012, so eight years ago. We're still investing in Check 24. And, and what it has shown me is when businesses work, what a long runway they still have ahead of them. So, so one of the, I think one of the mistakes one can make is to sell businesses early. I mean, what I've learned is, once businesses work, they can long, they can go for a long, long way, and they become really, really big. So yeah, so so those are the businesses I've been involved in: Kayak, Track Twenty Four, uh, Solonis, which is a software company in Germany. Uh, they uh, focus on process mining. World Remit, which is a remittance company. Uh, Showroom Privé, which was an online, which is an online fashion retailer in France, which went public in Paris. A funding circle, which went public here in London. So I, I've done all kinds of stuff. So I've done travel, e-commerce, software, uh, you name it, financial services. I mean, that's covering quite a broad range of things. Although there is a little bit of a pattern there. Uh, definitely marketplaces and, and fintech. And um, what's interesting though is, you know, you're obviously covering some things that are also um, consumer facing versus enterprise facing, and 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 you you mentioned about. Um, letting companies scale rather than selling too early. What was the first mistake you made that you look back on as an investor? Because I mean, you know, we talked about mistakes and you can learn every year new mistakes, but you know, with, with such a broad range of, of companies that you've covered and seen, you know, you look back maybe your first year or two or three as an investor and, and what was the biggest mistake? And it doesn't have to be specifically about a bad investment, but like a, a wrong mindset or wrong assumption that you made. Maybe we yes, should do so, so, so I, I don't want to mention the company specifically. I, I, think, I think one lesson that I learned is that you cannot really change the DNA of a company. So, so if companies have been around for a while and have um, gotten into certain habits, into certain mindsets, etc., then I think it is very hard to, to actually change that, to undo that. So um, that's one thing that I learned, which is, which is really, really important. Um, another thing that I learned is that you can actually find out a lot in due diligence and by proper referencing and, um, and doing your homework. And by skipping things and cutting some corners, you can miss out on pretty important information that's, that, that ends up being quite, quite critical later on. So, 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 so that's, that's it. So doing your homework, and of course that's a challenge now because in a market that uh, is as vibrant as it is today, there's very little time for, for diligence. Yeah. And actually I was going to ask you a little bit about the evolution of the ecosystem. And I think that that's a point that I would actually Maybe we, we can pause it for that point in time when we talk about it in a little bit. But, but yes, the speed at which things are happening does prevent certain things from being done in a way that maybe, maybe should be done. But we'll, we'll revisit that idea in a second. Um, when you look back at a lot of the, the founders that you worked with and the CEOs you worked with, what are the habits that you've seen 
that they have that you admire the most? It's, I was thinking about that. It's an interesting combination of, of a number of things, right? It, it's a cocktail. And, um, and there's many different cocktails that work. So there's no, no particular cocktail that's, uh, that is the cocktail. But, but it typically is a um, uh, combination of um, curiosity, um, and, um, disregard for... Um, how things are normally done, um, a uh, into a sense of intellectual honesty, uh, an enormous amount of perseverance, but then also a certain amount of flexibility, because it, 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 especially in the beginning, you have to maneuver, go left, right, and you cannot be stuck on a particular path. And then, and, and then there's a very important one, is a, a certain amount of salesmanship. And that salesmanship, not only towards investors to get money on board, but most importantly, salesmanship and towards uh, new recruits, co-founders, early employees, um, an ability to sell the dream and, and to convince others of the dream so that they join you. Because at the end of the day, uh, it is really the team that makes things happen. And it's the founder who puts the team together. So... Ultimately, what, what, what the great CEOs have in common is that they, they can sell the dream, they can portray the dream and get other very smart people on board and, and pursue the, the mission that they have set out to, uh, to pursue. Mm. This is one of those tricky questions that um, you can either dodge or you can answer, but basically it's, you know, with all that pattern matching in mind, um, if you, if you met a company that was doing relatively well, but the CEO had none of those traits, to some extent, less of those traits, do you think that you would invest in them on the basis that you might be able to coach them along the way for anything that they don't have? So for example, the perfect example, this is culturally some, some, some people are just not very good at salesmanship. They manage that, you know, the product sells itself, but you know, that they could be further along if they, if they had maybe a, a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. How much do you see the investor as a coach in key attributes or how much of it should just be entirely hands-off? You just find yeah. the right team and then that's hands-off. It's, it, it is a very tricky question. In general, I, so my, my view on, on my job is that I just want to be helpful I don't have the thought that I can be really impactful on businesses. Um, the only real impact that I could have is that I could help mess it up. I think investors and board members can be helpful. At the end of the day, it's the, it's the founder who needs to make it happen. We can get in the way of people in a negative way. And so the best thing to do is to not have a negative impact. So that's a very long-winded way of saying is you you can advise and help, but I don't think it's helping that much. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the founder entrepreneur who has to make things happen. And if he or she is lacking on some of those aspects, I would have to really scratch my, my, my head. It's always a balance sheet, right, and an investing opportunity. So, so the opportunity would have to be really obvious, namely a massive market, massive tailwinds, maybe from offline to online transition, uh, customers who are who are showing up themselves on the doorstep, etc. Where you say that this is going so well, we, we, we ought to be able to, to 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 help engineer something. 
but um, but that it would it would have to be really attractive. At the end of the day, we're in a people business, and it's all about people. So talking about people, I mean, I think you've seen enough of the European ecosystem evolve, and you've been involved in the U.S. one as well. What what do we still need more of in the European ecosystem, people wise or infrastructure wise or financing wise? I think we're, I think we're pretty close to. Um, where we can get so 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 what the us has and what we don't have is a massive home market that is relatively homogeneous right so the the issue that europe still has especially when it comes to um when it comes to consumer brands is you can build a brand in germany but uh, if you then expand into into uh, france and the uk you, you have to start all over again so that's the bit where, where the U.S. still has an advantage. But, but in other ways, availability of capital, I say check. Um, availability of great entrepreneurs, check. Availability of great uh, sort of centers for innovation, check. Um, um, so would you include the access to the same, the same level of, if you look at the Valley, and, and that's a whole separate conversation post-COVID because there's a diaspora of people leaving San Francisco and all this stuff. But would you say that um, the the sort of the best know-how of like product management, VP engineering, a lot of that, is that has been evenly distributed across Europe or is that still sort of in progress? I, I think at the very beginning, uh, when I started and when you started, product management was kind of a role, especially product management in technology companies, was a role that, that didn't quite exists in in Europe and all the great people were on the west coast i think what has happened is we're now company wise in second or third generations of management teams who have been at successful start company number 1 then went to company number 2 company number 3 so there there is a base of very experienced product people here in Europe now too that wasn't the case uh, 5 years ago or 10 years ago but I think it is the case now. Um, so that clearly was was an Achilles heel because, of course, product management in, in an early stage startup company is, is, is very important. Um, I I don't see that as that much of a problem right now because because the, the the real thing that has happened is is the ecosystem of founders and experienced senior level people, VPs of engineering, VP of products, VP of sales, has, has matured. And there's enough people around who've done this several times around right now and who, who are no longer learning on the job. So so I think we're good here. Well, that's good. I mean, that's that's very encouraging to hear because, you know, you obviously have different people kind of saying different things, especially when they're going through inflection points in hiring and, and the struggle to find it in, some, in, in the same way that maybe they do in the Valley with different prices, of course. So as we fast forward on the company's development, I think financing tends to be a key theme that obviously affects companies at different stages in different ways. And I'm going to I'm going to go all the way to the very end to the public listings or IPOs, direct listings and all, and all the things that are kind of uh, trendy at the moment in terms of topics because of, of how large the market is for some public markets. And if you look at Kayak and, and sort of extrapolate um, a different outcome for it, if you go back in time and pretend that that time of the listing was today, walk us through kind of how you would think about 
taking a company like Kayak Public, whether it be through, you know, SPACs or direct listings or the, the way that you guys went about it? Yeah. So, so, so there's kind of three options, right? The, one is the traditional IPO. Two is a, a direct listing. And three is a SPAC. I, I, I think the traditional IPO is in, in, in the U.S. form, right? So you end up raising a relatively small amount of money. You end up with a float, like a publicly traded uh, part of the shareholder register that's relatively small. You get a big pop. If things go well, you get a big pop on, uh, on an IPO. And then, and then um, you end, actually end up telling, this is the interesting bit, and, and this relates to, the, to, to what I'm going to tell about specs and direct listings. You're, you're going to be telling your story to the investment community essentially through research analysts. So, so you end up not giving forward-looking um, uh, predictions. Really what you end up doing is you end up speaking to the research analysts and banks who will write their, uh, their research and, and who will kind of sketch how they feel that the company might do, da 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 um, in, um, in a direct listing and in a spec, you end up giving many more forward-looking statements about the company yourself. So you have a better opportunity to tell your story yourself and, and not necessarily through research analysts. So, so, so taking one step back, in, in a direct listing, as it is uh, practiced today, actually the company does not raise money. So, so it's a direct listing essentially is, is an... Um, Okay, the shares become listed, and and the shares that end up trading are are existing investors who decide to sell their shares, not the company, and and, and external investors buy it. Um, so the company doesn't raise money, which which of course, if the company does need money, it it, it becomes it is not that great a fit. In a spec, just for the people who aren't familiar with it, is a spec is is a company that only has a whole bunch of money, call it $400 million in cash. It's been raised by, that's it, no, no, no IP, no management team, no nothing. It's raised typically by a financial sponsor, but it's publicly listed, so the shares in the spec trade. And then the way for a technology company to, um, to raise money is to merge with that spec and get the cash and a, a public listing all in one shot. Uh, the advantage is, as I mentioned, that, um, that you can tell your story uh, more yourself. The, the other bit is that uh, it, it attracts, a SPAC attracts a different kind of investor because whereas in an IPO, people typically know that, okay, there's likely going to be a pop. So it, it attracts investors who might leave after the pop. Whereas in a SPAC, it's actually more... Um, accurately priced so there's no big discounts so the people who invest in who are are in the spec um, better love the company and the interesting bit of course is that the investors in the spec um, don't know what company the spec is going to buy so there will be a turnover in the shareholder register of the spec itself uh, once they know what the company is that is being bought so there's many more options right now um, and it really depends on on what the company needs to achieve. If the company needs to raise 
a bunch of cash quickly, then maybe direct listing isn't a great option because in a direct listing, you don't raise money. You do an IPO and you do an SPAC. But, it, but if you look back at the, at the kayak example and kind of pretend, make pretend that, that that situation were live today, right now, I mean, what, there's, there's, there's this universe of options that you could, you know, as you mentioned, you went through that you could have as a founder or as an investor group. And I'm just curious to see what, if your choices would have been any different today. Um, I think because we wanted to raise some money at the time, uh, I think we would have chosen between an IPO or a direct listing. Uh, I don't think we would have chosen for, for a SPAC. The, the IPO served us perfectly all right. So, so, so some of the issues is, okay, if you need to raise a very big amount of money, right? Mm. The, 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 the criticism of an IPO is if it pops by a big amount on day one, that essentially means that you have mispriced the offering, right? Because if you if you price it at 100 and it pops at 150, then the company has left money on the table. If you, if you raise a, a relatively small amount, then one can say, okay, who cares? If you raise a big amount, obviously that, that's more relevant. So in the, in the case of Kayak, we ended up raising a relatively small amount. Um, it was up 20 or 30%, so which is not massive. So it was not massively mispriced. Mm -hmm. I think we probably would have chosen for the same thing. Well, one of the big yeah. things, Carlos, by the way, mm -hmm. for investors is when to go public. Because, mm -hmm. because of course, going public is, um, um, is just... It's not the end of the story. It's just mm. a it's just a different kind of financing, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but investors end up holding um, public company stock, which is freely tradable. So there ends up being some pressure from um, um, from LPs who say, "Okay, well, it, the, the stock is public. Why don't you distribute things?" So, which means that the VC kind of ends up exiting earlier than he or she may have liked. So, so if a company goes public, the, the venture capitalists end up kind of leaving within one or two years. Mm. Um, if, if it's a company that has a long and wide runway, uh, maybe you don't want to do the IPO earlier and just postpone it because then you just can keep motoring for a longer time, right? And and this is you touched exactly on the topic that I wanted to add, and you you beautifully brought it together. And we have like three different ideas that are kind of all pushing in different directions. You know, selling too early, holding on to the company is the most valuable. How do you provide liquidity for people that that are in the company at the same time, having it be accessible in a public way for for new new investors? And all these things are all pushing against each other, and with one trend also in the background, which is companies are raising more and more capital, record amounts of capital at the private level than ever before in history. And their need for external financing is no longer even there. Like they have so much money in, in, in private markets that externally sourced capital isn't like the main driver, which then forces or, or makes it more attractive to do uh, direct listings or SPACs. And, and I just wanted to get your sense of how you think that's going to evolve because in, as more companies have all this growth capital from the sidelines coming in, that's you know there's the pressure of the internal investors wanting liquidity via private secondary markets internally, but also wanting to have that be maybe 
a little bit more publicly accessible or maybe more available to, to people. How do you think that's all going to play out? I think it, it all depends company by company, right? But for the really great businesses, I, I'm, I'm a big believer of staying private as long as you can. And, um, um, and by the way, the, the really great businesses don't have to raise a lot of external capital because they, they end up becoming profitable cash mm. and just can keep going for a long, long time. Uh, it is not easy to, to run these very um, still delicate businesses. So in, in, in the view of, of a venture capitalist, we, we might think of these businesses as big companies, right? If they have a few million in revenues. Typically in the big picture, they're still tiny companies in massive markets. So, and, and all kinds of stuff can happen to these tiny companies, which really means that things are all, not always that predictable, right? Mm. So if, if for a small business, you have to predict things every quarter, quarter by quarter, um, that's not so easy. So but my advice would be, okay, stay private for a, 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 as long as you can until you feel that the business has become really predictable. And of course, in SaaS businesses, which have tend to have pretty predictable revenues, um, that, that's becoming easier. I think that uh, the trend that we have right now where there's more and more private uh, uh, money available, where companies raise, keep raising money in the private markets, where they go public much later, will we'll continue. It's a trend that makes total sense. It's a trend that I don't think will reverse. And there will appear solutions for, for issues such as, okay, uh, some investors may need to have um, uh, secondary money available because they, they need to exit earlier. It, it, it tends to be that the earlier investors who really were involved early on with the business, they may not be institutional investors, they may be smaller funds. I think that the, the, the more institutional, long-term oriented investors would be smart to just stay with these companies for a long time. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's spawned a whole industry of different weird little ways of solving that problem. And there's a whole cottage industry of that right now. And then on top of that, there's a whole emergence of private, private slash public markets, you know, like I mean, a perfect example of this is like um, some of the crowdfunding platforms that have within them a secondary market so that people that are part of that crowdfunding, you know, so we're seeing this evolution of this ecosystem to enable liquidity for early stage investors as the company grows and stays private, because as you said, like it's, it's always preferential to stay as private as long as possible. But I'm, I'm curious to like, you know, there's, there's like, it's a clutch, you know, like a SPAC feels like a little bit like a, a clutch mechanism in, in enabling like a transition from uh, private to public. But if you look at how all these things are evolving, if you fast forward five years into the future, what kind of investor do you think is no longer going to exist? Like, because there's so much like, big money coming in early and, you know, so much available capital. Like if you had to predict what kind of investor, and, and this is probably exaggerating it because they're always going to be around, but just like if you have to pick what kind of investor you think will not be around five years from now, what, what would you predict? I, I think all of them will be around, uh, but, but I think things are going to specialize a lot. So, so people are going to, be forced to swim in, uh, in their swim lanes. So, so there will always be, we just spoke about the trend, there will be mm -hmm. always be later stage investors. Mm -hmm. um, 
there will always be venture investors. The, the think and, and seed investors, et cetera, et cetera. I, I do think that that early on, for example, when we were with Excel in Europe, we ended up doing a, a, a quite of a broad range of things in the same fund. So mm -hmm. in the same fund, we ended up doing seed investments and we ended up doing later stage investments. I think the trend clearly has been that 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 things um, will will separate and there will be different funds for for different purposes. I do think that um, that the later stage uh, market will be hyper competitive, and, and part of the reason is that the, the most the most difficult judgments to make are the ones about people, entrepreneurs, product that haven't that haven't quite found product market fit, and you kind of have to do that semi in person locally. However. When the opportunity has become the opportunity to invest in a business, where there is P&Ls that you can look at, where you can put a ruler against the against the trends and predict a few years forward, then that all becomes more. Um, it becomes a little bit easier, and it becomes a little bit easier to do it from a distance, which necessarily means that there's many more people who can do it, and that becomes hyper competitive. So, so I think the earlier you go, the more things are centered around people, about contacts, around networks, and, and the more local that will be. And local means that there's a certain amount of um, friction because local means that people who are far away have a hard time competing. And, and, and I think that, that that becomes a bit easier. Mm. I, I think one of the, the knock-on effects of all that competitiveness at the late stage and this is a knock-on effect, I think, is the, that there's round inflation. Um, and, and round inflation can either come in terms of round size or the round valuation, which then has a trickle-down effect into, you know, you, you look at sort of the last five years and you look at the average round valuation for companies in the same stage, it goes up and up and up. And, and there's two answers to that. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you get away with the easy one, which is like, well, it's price parity relative to the U.S. and, you know, it was underpriced or underpremiumed because of the evolution of the founders in Europe versus that's the easy answer. Um, I, I'd like to see if, if you have a view on what that implication is of that sort of ongoing price inflation and the hyper competitiveness at the later stage. Do you think that there's a natural plateau for that? Do you think it'll continue to grow at the same rate in that round size hyper competitiveness between late stage funds, which drives that valuation? Or do you think that there is a compression event that will come that will sort of, or, or will be super additional fragmentation of the series A, pre-series A, you know, what, what do, what's your view on the evolution of that? Yeah, all right. So, so I'll give you a slightly longer answer because mm -hmm. I, I think this is very important. So if you take a step back, what has happened is in a way we've had very high inflation in our asset class, technology companies. So, so what has happened, and, and COVID, as with many things, has accelerated. COVID accelerates trends. The trend that was happening anyway in our business was was there's a lot of money available. For example, right now during COVID, the Fed has created, I think, five trillion in new money. All that money ends up being in the, ends up in the credit markets. The, the money that traditionally was in the credit markets ends up in the equity markets. What are you going to invest in? Are you going to invest in a company that is shrinking because of COVID? Or do you want to invest in a company that's growing? Which 
then of course, and so being a technology company. So, so prices in public markets have gone up dramatically, as you can see. Prices, therefore, in the private markets have gone up dramatically. And people have caught on to the fact that all the action in, um, in technology investing happens in the private markets. So you've got to be in the private markets. Lots of money around, um, big rounds being raised. Now, here is, here is the mechanism, I think, that stops that. In, in building consumer companies, you can put a lot of money to work because the key thing in consumer companies is customer acquisition. Customer acquisition costs money. Um, and therefore, if you throw more money at it, you can acquire more customers more quickly, typically. Not all, I mean, of course, channels don't always scale, da, 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 but, but you tend to be able to put a, a big amount of money um, at, at work. In, in enterprise companies, which is the, where most of the opportunities are today, of course, there, there's this pendulum that swings back and forth, but right now it's in enterprise companies. In enterprise companies, there's only so much money that you can put to work effectively. You, you can put more money to work on R&D, you can put more money to work in hiring a sales force, but a sales force still consists of people, so mm. there's only so many people who can you, whom you can hire quickly. There's only so many good people around at a particular point in time. So in other words, there's only so much money that you can put to work. I think people are learning that you can over, that there's, an, an enterprise company has, has a certain pace at which it can grow. If you want it to grow faster, then you end up wasting money. So that's a long-winded way of saying is you can only put so much money effectively to work in enterprise companies. And I think that is going to provide that ceiling of, okay, will, will companies always be raising more and more money at higher and higher valuations? And my view is I doubt that. There, there are also already several companies with which I'm involved who get new term sheets for more and more money. And I say, you know what? You already have a lot of money on the, on the balance sheet. Uh, why take the dilution? We don't, we don't really need it. Yeah, I, I, I hope that answers your question. It does, and and I think that the interesting thing, and in, in, and I agree. Like I think, and it's hard. It's it's a bit unfair asking you the question because it's a bit hard to sort of extrapolate what that sort of ceiling is of people being silly and offering founders just anything to to get the deal done. And then of course, there's going to be some founders that are are going to agree with with your view and and sort of the view of like, actually, I don't need to take more or this is silly dilution or this is silly valuation. And there's going to be some that are like, no, I'll just take I'll take the the term sheet because it is. Well, Harry, I've, I've, I've taken up so much of your time. Um, it's been absolute pleasure to, to chat with you. Likewise. And I feel like I feel like there's so much more that I could ask you that I have like, you know, would love to ask you and maybe we'll do a part two sometime soon and just go into some of the right, ones. But um, it was an absolute pleasure having you on behalf of everybody who's, who's listening. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.